already know I wanna be free. wanna be free I wanna be free. wanna be free Welcome to Liberty Chats, produced by members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council. Thank you for joining us. We talk to a variety of experts, leaders, journalists, and policymakers about our nation's founding principles, why they are still so relevant and essential to preserving freedom for everyone, what specific challenges and threats they face today, and how those founding principles best safeguard and empower everyone's ability, young and old, to attain prosperity and personal happiness. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Liberty Chats, a podcast from the Steamboat Institute. My name is Matt Melcher. I'm a member of the Emerging Leaders Council, a leadership program out of the Institute, and I'm excited to be here today. My guests have met a couple times through Steamboat events. She's absolutely wonderful. Uh, she's an author, a speaker, a TV commentator, a proud Christian, and she was also a recent speaker at the Freedom Conference. My guest is Dr. Carol Swain. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I am doing great, and it's a pleasure, and I love the work you do at the Steamboat Institute. The Steamboat Institute is fantastic. Uh, we're, we're all about um, free markets, the Constitution, individual rights, and uh, I understand you're a pretty big fan of the Constitution as well. Yes, and we all need to be a fan of the Constitution. Uh, people will miss it. You know, if it's ever gone, we're going to miss it a lot. Would you say, uh, just with your experience, I mean, you, you've taught um, hundreds and thousands of students. Uh, how many would you say have a firm grasp and a, a good understanding of the Constitution? Well, I would say that the students that took courses in American government, now this would depend on the professor because you have professors, you know, who are, who are fans of Howard Zinn. You know, and so you might have professors that taught American government in a way that they didn't emphasize the importance of the Constitution. But I would imagine that most uh, political science majors understand the Constitution. One of the things I learned, though, uh, with my joint position in the law school at Vanderbilt and just being aware of what was taking place in the legal world, that it became possible for a student to get a law degree without having taken a course on the Constitution. And so I think that may be one of the reasons why you have so many people with law degrees in Congress working for the executive branch. They have no appreciation for the Constitution. And even scarier, if you have students that have gone through the Ivy League and they've done really well and they become Supreme Court clerks and you know maybe someday Supreme Court justices, Unless they are firmly steeped in the Constitution and they have an appreciation for the document, then you get dangerous outputs. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of concerning. You mentioned, you know, your, your time at Vanderbilt and, and teaching there. But I want to go back because you've got such a, a great story. Um, it, it didn't just um, you just didn't end up at Vanderbilt. I understand you. You were a high school dropout before that. Uh, is that right? I was one of 12 children born and raised in rural poverty in southwestern Virginia. And I contend that rural poverty is a lot worse than urban poverty because you can't jump on a bus and go to a museum and do some of the things that you can do in the city. You can see a parade in the city. You have more, the libraries on walking distance out in the country. Uh, that's not the case. And the two room shack that I spent part of my life in had no indoor plumbing. 
And so it was a, a, a poverty that was grueling. Uh, we were so poor, we didn't even have an outhouse. Wow. And so you have this journey. I mean, we hear all the time about um, just the how America's racist and it's impossible to get out, um, you know, this systemic um, hole that people get in. Do you agree with that one? And two, how did you make this transition to, uh, you know, having, you know, being a doctor, having a law degree and just the great background you have? Tell, tell me about that. Well, I can tell you that uh, I, I was born in 1954, and that was the year of the Brown versus Board of Education uh, desegregation uh, school Supreme Court case desegregating public schools across the United States. In my state of Virginia, we did not integrate until the end of the 1960s. The Supreme Court had ruled that it would take place in all deliberate speed. And so Virginia, uh, that's how long it took. And I can tell you that despite being born during the era of systemic racism, there was a lot of optimism around me. And uh, my mother and my uh you know, grandparents and the people that were near me did not teach me or my siblings to hate America uh, That uh, about what we couldn't do. We did not see ourselves as victims. And I grew up believing that if I worked hard, I could achieve the American dream. There was no one telling me that I couldn't. And I also grew up at a time when in Virginia, uh, we were taught Virginia history, and we were very proud of the fact that we lived in the state that produced the most presidents. And so that was a pride for nation and, um, and also for the state of Virginia. And so I can say that um, I saw the civil rights movement unfold on television because, again, out in the country, nothing was happening, but you could watch it on TV. There was a sense of optimism and uh, I watched as those three major civil rights bills were passed in the 1960s. They created opportunities for people like me. And I was able to take advantage of those opportunities. And I can tell you that there were many white men and women who stepped into my life, who encouraged me to continue my education. And I would not have the successful Carol Swain story had it not been, you know, just for the the upbringing, despite the poverty, the messages that I received, you know, from the society around me and the people who were willing to encourage me and offer a helping hand. And so that's part of the Carol Swain story. I never sought to become a university professor. People stepped into my life. They encouraged me. That's awesome. So I, I want to go back. You, you mentioned your mother um, telling you about the, the American dream. And I want to ask you, when you were um, a, a young woman, what what did the American dream mean? I mean, what did, how did you define it then? And maybe now that you've got you know a couple of decades of experience and success, I want you to define that now in your, your perspective on it. I can so what was the you, original? I can tell you from my mother, she did not uh, treat her children as victims, and so I don't know that she described the American dream because my mother and Many of my siblings have lived in a lot of poverty. So there was poverty there, but there was no one discouraging you from working hard. And for me, uh, I married at 16, had my first child at 17. By the time I was 21, I had three small children. And so for me, uh, you know, getting married, having a home, 
you know, having a husband was important to me at that time and uh, having a car and just being able to pay your bills. That was the American dream that I aspired for. And all these things that came later with me becoming, um, you know, I ended up getting five college and university degrees, starting with the community college and ending with a master's in law at Yale after I had earned my PhD and taught for 10 years at Princeton and been tenured. I went back to school and I got another degree. And uh, for me, life has been a journey. And uh, I love America. I think it offers uh, tremendous opportunities and that where you start your life does not determine where you end and that your attitude about life and about America, your attitude is far more important than uh, where you come from in determining your success. Absolutely. And so I guess with um, what's the biggest, I guess, uh, perversion of the American dream that people are being told now? Well, they're being told that they that they are entitled to what someone else worked for. And uh, and they're being told that uh, America is a systemically racist country, that racism is permanent, that if you are a minority, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you're going to be discriminated against, and that you deserve an equal outcome regardless of the amount of effort you put into to, uh, your work. And so I think that's very dangerous. And it's also unfair to people who played by the rules, who worked very hard to get where they are, And for myself, uh, I was an honor student um, for my bachelor's degree. I graduated magna cum laude, won national prizes, been very successful. But it meant that I gave up a lot, you know, that I gave I didn't go to the parties. I wasn't, uh, you know, out uh, playing around. I had my nose to the grindstone working because I had a goal. I needed uh, money to support my children. And uh, and so I wanted to finish school as quickly as possible with the highest possible grades. And so that meant I made sacrifices. And so I'm successful. I'm enjoying, you know, the fruits of my labor, but I don't believe that it's fair for people who put in less effort or no effort to expect that they should get the same outcome. And we should not be sending that message to children. I agree with that, except for you said that you wanted to finish school as quickly as possible. Right. Five degrees. I don't think that's right because you've done a lot more schooling than anybody I know. So uh, but you've always you know, loved um, just getting better and, and you have such a great story. You mentioned this, um, just this theme of optimism and, and just always, you know, thinking you're going to be all right. And if you worked hard, you could achieve it. There's a lot of really concerning things going on with our country right now. Um, but what are what are you optimistic about? What, what do you see as a, a good change that maybe, um, you know, as conservatives, it, it's easy to get down on what's going on. But what are you excited about? That the American people are pushing back, that they understand that what's taking place with the vaccine mandates, that there's something very evil, something very wrong about that. They realize uh, what's taking place in the public schools and how the government is trying to take away their children and indoctrinate their children. And they are willing to organize and stand up and fight back against that. Uh, It encourages me when I go places uh, and I attend these events that are filled with young people of the Steamboat Institute. I know it works closely with young people, but Young America's Foundation, um, 
you know, Blexit, Turning Point USA, Prager Force, uh, Clara Luce Booth, and there are other organizations that are working very closely with our youth. That encourages me. That excites me. Absolutely. And a couple of weeks ago, right, um, the, the Texas Public Policy Foundation you joined. Um, yes. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, what you're doing with that opportunity and, and what um, what will come of that. Well, they appointed me as a distinguished senior fellow for constitutional studies. And basically, uh, I was hired to do what I do already, media, uh, testifying before the legislature when uh, invited, attending meetings with donors and writing opinion pieces or writing books. I mean, that's what I do. And for me, it's great because it gives me uh, a base and an infrastructure I don't have to keep calling myself former Vanderbilt and Princeton professor that I now have a place. I have a title. I have a job. And I I can tell you that um, for someone like me, having a job is important. Now, I've been self-employed since I left Vanderbilt in 2017. So self-employed, you know, means that you have to make something happen every day. And uh, it also meant that I had to take almost every speaking engagement that came my way. And now I will be able to pick and choose and spend more time, you know, writing and thinking and resting a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) The rest is important. You've written eight books now, right? Um, Eleven, I believe. Eleven now. In fact, two this summer. Two this summer. Which, um, if if someone is unfamiliar with their work, with your work, and and wants to um, just take one um, and really, really study it. What, what is your favorite book that you've written and that's maybe most applicable uh, to d- today's current climate? Well, that was a, my first book, won three national prizes, and it was cited by the U.S. Supreme Court. And someone looking on paper would say that my very first book, Black Faces, Black Interests, the representation of African-Americans in Congress was the most important book. And I say no. I thought that the most important book was my 2002 book on white nationalism. Um, The new white nationalism in America, it's challenged integration. I no longer think that's the most important book. Uh, I agree with the people that say that that book was prescient. uh, And the book was written at a time I was a Democrat, but that doesn't mean I didn't get it right. (laughs) I uh, concluded that we needed to move away from identity politics towards the American national identity and that uh, we were creating a devil's brew for racial unrest. And the book that is a bestseller, and my first real bestseller was published in August of this year, and it's called Black Eye for America, How Critical Race Theory is Burning Down the House. And the house is a home, America. And we know that last summer, it was on fire. All across the nation, we had riots night after night. I believe there were... 50 days straight of unrest after George Floyd's death. And so people were literally trying to burn down America and corporations and businesses were responding by giving money to uh, the rebel risers, to Black Lives Matter. And, you know, as far as I know, Antifa and those groups that said they were reforming society, but they were really destroying it. Groups that had Marxist roots. I believe that a Black Eye for America is... Uh, probably the most important book because I wrote it for the American people. There were so many parents and teachers and policymakers contacted me 
asking me to speak, asking me what could be done. And so that book was written, co-authored with a young man that started as a research assistant, and I made him a co-author. But it explains what CRT is, where it came from, how it impacts our society, why it's un-American, why it runs counter to our Constitution and our civil rights laws. And it has two chapters on how to fight back, strategies for fighting back. It has a glossary, which is needed because the CRT people say they're not doing CRT. They keep changing. You know, they have all these acronyms. They like to play word games. So the glossary is important. The index is important. A lot of times people won't have an index. It has an index. It has appendices with resources and uh, citations. And it wasn't written to be a polemical book. It was written to educate people, has steady questions at the end where people can really quiz themselves when they finish. That book is a book that uh, I believe empowers Americans. It was written for a lay audience. It's not very long, 176 pages. And a lot of those pages are the glossary, appendices, resources. You can educate yourself, uh, you know, in a few hours by purchasing that book and actually studying it and reading it. Now, the the critical race theory, and we only have a couple minutes here, but um, we're seeing this creep into to schools and um, employers and, and just in general. If someone is maybe unfamiliar with critical race theory, can you give a quick definition of how they define it and why they say it's good? And then I want you to um, tell us a little bit more about why we should be concerned about it and why it's important that people buy your book and, and become well-versed in, in their language. Well, the critical race theorists believe that it is an honest analysis of our society, that a society that's been structured for the benefit of white people. And they believe that white people put into place systemic racism that uh, re- reinforces their superior position in society. And because of their theory, they divide the world into the oppressors. Those are the white people who set up the systemic racism and the oppressed, the racial and ethnic minorities. They argue that white people have a property interest in their whiteness. They need to divest themselves of their skin color. They need to become actively anti-racist. No other group is told to become anti-racist, only white people. Minorities are told that they are victims. They're permanent victims because Racism is permanent. And out of that comes efforts to resegregate our society, to lower standards for racial and ethnic minorities, to demand equity, equal outcomes rather than equal opportunity. They've given up on non-discrimination, a colorblind society. They don't want anyone judged by the content of their character. They want everyone judged by their race and ethnicity uh, with white people being demonized and bullied and shamed. And uh, and I would say that there are civil rights being trampled. We should care about this because this is a civil rights issue. I believe it's the number one civil rights issue of our day and that the concerns and the damage uh, cuts across racial and ethnic lines, partisan lines. It is an American issue. And I think that we see parents across the country are uniting around it. It's it really is fascinating, and um, you know I've heard you speak on this multiple times, and we're we're running out of time. But I hope that uh, you know for a lot of you listening, that this just you know is is starting to 
to really interest you and that you will take the time to, to research more. Um, Dr. Swain, this has been fantastic. I can't wait to see you at another uh, Steamboat event. And, and thank you for all your, your hard work and just uh, encouragement and, and keep up the, uh, the work because we, we love what you're doing and, and it's just awesome to see. Well, thank you. And people that want to know more about my book can go to my website, bethepeoplenews.com, bethepeoplenews.com. And the book is Black Afro America, How Critical Race Theory is Burning Down the House. Get a copy and you will truly understand critical race theory, why it's so dangerous and why we have to unite uh, against it. Thank you for listening to today's Liberty Chat. I'm Erica Anderson, the producer of the podcast. Our podcast editor is Fingers Malloy. My co-producers include Charlotte Whalen, Zachary Rogers, Lindsay Martin, and Christina Eastman, all members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council, who represent the next generation of free market, free speech leadership. We hope you tune in again for our next Liberty Chat episode. Girl, you already know I wanna be, I wanna be free, I wanna be, free. wanna be free, yeah.